This week we're going to take a break from our study in the gospel according to Mark, and I want to prepare our hearts for the celebration of the birth of Christ. Does it feel like Christmas yet to you? This was a quick one, wasn't it? It was like, was Thanksgiving yesterday and then Christmas? So this morning we're going to be in the book of Luke chapter 1 so we can focus in, because I know my heart has taken a little while to get into the understanding that it is Christmas time. We've had the decorations up for a few weeks and we've been attending various things uh, in the community that are Christmas-themed, and yet I find myself, even as I was studying last night, needing a reminder to refocus on what Christmas is all about. So here we are three days before Christmas. I'm sure your stockings are hung by the chimney with care. Your presents are nicely and beautifully wrapped, and no shopping needs to be done anymore. All of us are deeply looking forward to our family gatherings where there will be absolutely no discussion of any political events whatsoever. <laughs> It'll look like a Norman Rockwell painting, I'm sure. Well, you guys are laughing a little bit, so you notice my sarcasm. This is the reality of Christmas, isn't it? The reality of Christmas is not a Norman Rockwell painting. In reality, we're all scared to death right now to go to Walmart or Costco or Target because the gauntlet has been thrown down and it is now defensive shopping season based on the philosophy of kill or be killed, metaphorically, of course, right? We're all worried about our family gatherings because we know that that one uncle who can't put down his mega hat is going to make a comment, right? Whether you're for Trump or against Trump, no one wants to talk about Trump over dinner, right? We know that these things are happening and going to happen. Almost everyone seems crabbier and busier and more stressed, and many of us are in conflict already about family gatherings and how they will go. And so we rightly wonder at this time of year, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, question mark. Tension is an innate characteristic of the Christmas season, I've found. The older I get, the more it's there. We're in this tension of both hope and rejoicing, and yet we're also faced with the fact that this time of year brings out the worst in humanity. Selfishness runs rampant, loneliness is an even greater plague, suicide rates skyrocket, and yet, at the same time, in the tension, there is so much good that comes at this time of year. Reconnection between people, charity and generosity, care towards oppressed parties, selflessness and hope. Does this tension resonate with you guys as you think about it? Do you even have time to think about the tension? Even the timing of Christmas is filled with tension. Christmas was originally put in place in the festal calendar of the early church around the fourth century uh, after Christ. The Roman Emperor Constantine, he put it in place, we don't know why, but he put it in place around the winter solstice. If you guys don't know, that was, I think, yesterday. And he put it there around the winter solstice, and this could have come out of a political motivation where he wanted to bring greater unity between all the pagan people of the empire and the Christians. It could have come out of his desire to um, basically redeem secular feasts. We don't know why he did it. Because we're guessing, most likely, Jesus was actually born in the spring, and yet we celebrate his birth here in the winter. And we celebrate it because it was placed there next to the winter solstice. And this placement, while making no sense in terms of the actual birth of Christ, it was probably uh, put there in a sense to help us with a little bit of this Christian rhythm. Because you see, at the winter solstice, it's a day in which light shifts, right? If you guys don't know this, um, this is when light starts to shift. The winter solstice is the shortest day of the year, the longest night of the year. And it was a day of rejoicing because 
it was the longest uh, point at which they realized the dark is here, but it's going to go away, and the light is coming, and we can have hope that spring and summer are on the way. Darkness is going away, and light is going to dawn. It's a point of looking back and looking forward. It's a day of hope for the kingdom of light, even though we are still surrounded and immersed in the kingdom of darkness, and even though the kingdom of darkness sometimes manifests itself out of our own selves. And so it actually pictures the tension that many of us feel at Christmas time very well, even though historically it's probably inaccurate. At Christmas, we're reminded to look back at the birth of Christ. We're reminded to look back at the fact that his birth led to his life, his death, his ministry, his resurrection, his ascension. And at the same time, the celebration of Christ's first advent also causes us to look forward. It causes us to look forward to the assured hope of his second advent. The day that Jesus was born into the world is celebrated because of the fact that in Christ Jesus, God became incarnate man. God stepped fully into our world, fully into the suffering that we experience. And he began a life fulfilling promises that had been made all the way back in Genesis from God to us as humanity. And so Christmas is a time where we can look back with joy and thankfulness at all the promises that he has fulfilled in Christ. And Christmas is also a time where we can look forward to the promise not yet fulfilled of the fullness of the kingdom when Jesus comes. And so Christmas is a time when we can cry out in yearning and hope for that deferred promise that it might come quickly. So this morning, I want to look at that tension of being present in this age where we look backward at Christ's first coming and also where we look forward to Christ's second coming. And I want us to see this morning that Christmas is a time where we can, re we can remember promises fulfilled and hope and promises yet to come. That's the title of the, the teaching this morning if you want to write it down. Remembering promises fulfilled, hoping in promises to come. That's what we're going to look at today, but we're going to do it specifically through the eyes of a woman named Miriam or Mary. And we're going to take a look at her position, being in this odd place of looking forward to promises that may not be fulfilled. You have to imagine where she was coming from, and we'll do that now. So let's take a look at our, our reading today at Luke 1.26, and we're going to familiarize ourselves with this young woman. Let's take a look there. In the sixth month, and in the preceding story, that's the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, who is the mother of John the baptizer. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, or Miriam in the, in the Greek. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. 
Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The first thing I want to remember on this Sunday before Christmas is that we can rejoice in the promises that have been fulfilled. The angel Gabriel gives promises here, and we're going to look at those promises fulfilled in Jesus. We can rejoice at Christmas time in promises that have been fulfilled already. Now let's pause for a moment and put ourselves in the sandals of this young woman named Miriam or Mary. I want us to recognize that for 30 plus years, how many of you in this room are 30 or older, right? Okay. For 30 plus years of Jesus's life, Mary was nothing more than Jesus's mom. Moms, you, you know what this is like, right? She didn't walk around five feet above the ground. She didn't walk around with a halo. She had to clean up, throw up. She had to feed. Mary was just his mom. She fed him. She changed his diapers. She comforted him when he cried. She watched him go through adolescence and into early adulthood in the fullness of his humanity. She watched as he stepped into an itinerant rabbinic position where he would go around and start to minister to people. Most likely, at this moment in time, Mary was somewhere between 13 and 15 years old. Now think about it. We have 13 to 15-year-old girls in our church. Imagine what would happen if one of them came in and said, hey, by the way, I've conceived a child by way of the Holy Spirit of El Elyon, the Most High God, and I'm going to produce the Messiah, right? It would be a little bit odd. Now, still under the care of her mother and father, she'd recently been betrothed to a man named Joseph in her small town of Nazareth. She was probably assisting her mother in the running of the household, going about doing what 13 to 15-year-old girls do. And in the sixth month of her relative Elizabeth's pregnancy that would produce John the baptizer, she received a visit from an angelic messenger. That's the background. There was no, no run-up. There was no preview. She's literally living life. And then one day, an angel of the Most High God shows up to this 13 to 15-year-old girl and says, by the way, you are the chosen one. Now that we're kind of in that place and we know that background, let's walk through these prophetic promises given to her by the angelic messenger Gabriel. We see five promises that Gabriel, Gabriel has made to her at this point in time, and she is to submit to by faith. The first one, if you want to write it down, is that we see that she will conceive and bear a son whom she will name Jesus. That's a promise. But recognize that she's standing there as a 13 to 15-year-old girl with no baby bump, with no understanding that she's pregnant, with no conception. She's literally been told, hey, this is going to happen. Now, how many of you would immediately be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, right? Anyone? How many of you would jump on board, on board as she does and says, hey, whatever, whatever needs to be done, go ahead and do it, Lord. Now, this was beyond miraculous. This was actually impossible. Look again at her response in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, guys, this may be a duh statement for you, but this was before IVF. There was one way and only one way for women to get pregnant. And if I have to describe more than that, come talk to me after service. We must understand that this is an honor-shame culture. Women didn't just turn up pregnant, especially betrothed in adolescence, and people turn a blind eye. Not only was it miraculous that she was impregnated, but guys, let's say she were lying. Let's say it was adulterous. It's miraculous she lived. Because being in an honor-shame culture, 
no one would have turned a blind eye. This is the corner of the world where women are stoned for dishonoring their families if caught in adultery. The fact that she survived this, that her husband didn't dismiss her, didn't divorce her, didn't hold her up as adulteress, had to be the work of God. This was miraculous. And the fact that Joseph took her as his wife and adopted Jesus is miraculous. Why would he take her in? Was he just that nice of a guy? You have to realize the cultural pressure that was on him in that day. You didn't just be a nice guy. You lived within the town and you acted within the culture. But in Matthew 1, which we will look at on Christmas Eve, we're told that Joseph, Mary's betrothed, was visited in a dream as well by an angel of the Lord who told him that she would conceive and bear a son by way of the Holy Spirit and the work of God. Guys, this never would have happened in that culture except for the work of God. In this one action of conceiving this child to a virgin, God was fulfilling a promise given through the prophet Isaiah roughly 800 years earlier. Many of you are familiar with the prophecy from Isaiah 7.14. It says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The prophecy in Isaiah goes on to blend in the sign of a child born to Isaiah in the day of his prophesying, as well as this future Messiah to come. But Isaiah 7.14 is referenced by the gospel writers to state clearly that it was speaking of the virgin birth as a sign of God's desire to be with mankind that had rebelled so clearly against him. By giving us Emmanuel, he was showing us how much he loved us, how much he desired to be with us, that while we were yet sinners, he loved us and he saved us. And this Jesus that would grow up, the Apostle John would speak of him in his gospel in John 1.14, saying that he was the one that became God amongst us, became Emmanuel. John 1.14 says, and the word became flesh, became incarnate, and dwelt among us. That word is to be tenting, to camp. In other words, to camp within a human body. He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In the baby Jesus, God was making good on his promise that he is the God who desires to step into our world, to be incarnate, to live in what we live in, to suffer with us under the effects of the curse just as we do, so that we might be healed, so that we might be redeemed in him through his death and resurrection. Christmas reminds us that God made good on that promise to never leave his people nor forsake us, but rather to come to us and deliver us. Christmas reminds us that we serve the rescuing Exodus God that sees his people in the brokenness and oppression of the kingdom of darkness and acts to free us. Secondly, we see the gospel writer of Luke quote Gabriel as promising that Jesus would be great now, this is not just a random statement of exaltation. This is in specific contrast to the author's earlier statement about John the baptizer. Look back with me at Luke 1.13 through 15a there in your Bible. And in Luke 1.13 through 15, he says, the angel said to Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Zechariah is the father of John the baptizer. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he, John the baptizer, will be great before the Lord. 
The same author says later in Luke, in Luke 7, 28, he says that Jesus was quoted as saying, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, many commentators fight on this one. Some say, well, Jesus was saying he wasn't really necessarily born among women because that's an idiom to be used for people conceived in natural biological childbirth. Or maybe he was saying that he was the one who is the servant that's the least in the kingdom of God, and that is why he's greater than John the baptizer. Either way, we don't know, but we know that Luke is trying to paint a picture here of who Jesus is. Jesus is the greatest of all. And he's not the greatest of all because he puffed himself up or was arrogant or conceited or showed that he was the best among his peers. Jesus showed that he was the greatest in the kingdom because he was the servant of all. He's the greatest because he is the servant that died for the very people who hated him. His great love for you and I showed in this service. In that great love, Jesus laid down his very life so that you and I might be restored in relationship with the Father. An ultimate act of manifesting the character of the kingdom of God, dying for the very person, for the very people who hate you. On the cross, Jesus became the servant of all mankind. And Philippians 2 tells us this. This is what Paul says. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming uh, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. By becoming the servant of all, Jesus has become the greatest of all. On Christmas, we're reminded that God the Father spared no expense, so to speak, to rescue you and I. He gave the greatest of anything he had to rescue you and I. And he humbled himself not just to the point of the cross, but he began that humbling by putting himself in a lowly manger, by becoming a baby, the most vulnerable of creatures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that you and I might not perish but have eternal life with him. He gave the greatest sacrifice in his son, the greatest sacrifice he possibly could, so you and I would be his own. Third, the messenger Gabriel promises that Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High. Not only will he be the greatest, not only will he be conceived and birthed to a virgin, but he will be the Son of the Most High. This name, the Most High, is the Greek form of the Hebrew El Elyon, or God Most High. It's another way of saying that Jesus will be called the Son of God. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is referred to with this title. In the Gospel according to Mark that we're looking at on our usual Sunday gathering, it begins by saying this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In his trial, Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and they say, tell us plainly, are you the Son of God? And he says, you have said so. He points out to them that they have actually called him that. But her, perhaps the most impactful moment related to this title, Son of God, is in his last moments on the cross. Look with me at the screen here where I have Mark 15, verses 37 through 39. There on the cross, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, 
who stood facing him saw in this way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. In this moment in which a Gentile centurion soldier professed Jesus, the Jewish Christ, as the son of God, the power of Yahweh began spreading wide beyond the boundaries of the Jewish people. The promise to save all nations began to be fulfilled. And as Mary, the mother of Jesus, stood off in the distance observing the cross, one has to wonder if she was able to hear the proclamation of the centurion and if it made her hearken back to the memory of the promise 30 years earlier given by Gabriel, now fulfilled. At Christmas, we are strengthened in faith because we can recall that the very Son of God, the heir to the kingdom of God, was born so that he might one day be the sacrifice that paid for your sin and for mine, that paid the price for our transgression against an eternal holy God. That's what Christmas is about. Fourth, Gabriel promised that, his, that this Jesus would be enthroned on the throne of David and would reign over the house of Jacob. What an amazing statement for a girl between 13 to 15 years old to hear. Not only are you going to conceive a baby, but he will be the king of the Jews, and more so the king of the universe. Her son would one day be given the throne of the greatest king to ever reign over Israel, the king of David, a man after God's own heart. Nine months later, Caesar Augustus put out a decree that all of his subjects be registered in a census. And so each family needed to go to the hometown of their lineage. Can you turn with me to Luke chapter 2 in your Bible? And we'll see where the parents of Jesus went. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Take a look at verse 11. The angels come and they say to the shepherds, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I wonder, as they entered the town, or at any point after birth as she nursed her son, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, if she reflected on the words of Gabriel, that this baby who she was giving life to by nursing would be enthroned on the throne of his ancestor David. I wonder if she had that thought. It was most likely difficult for Mary to see this promise fulfilled with her own eyes, even to the point of Jesus' death. Death on a cross, that doesn't look like an enthronement, does it? That doesn't look like he's raising up to be the leader of the Jewish people. For Jesus was indeed crowned, but he was crowned with a crown of thorns. He did indeed wear a royal robe, but that royal robe was blood-soaked as it was on his back that was beaten and whipped. He did indeed get to be high and lifted up, but it was with nails upon a cross. And he was indeed coronated as king of the Jews, but it was by way of a sign upon the cross to which he was nailed. As Mary stood there, I wonder if she questioned 
if she cried out to God and said, God, you told me through Gabriel that he would be king, and yet here he is being murdered, completely innocent. But then three days after death, Mary witnessed the resurrection of the man that was her son, but now was so much more than that. In his death and resurrection, Jesus was enthroned to fulfill the angelic promise. And 40 days later, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon those that were his disciples, Mary was most likely a witness to Peter's first apostolic sermon that's recorded in Acts chapter 2. Why don't you turn there with me to Acts 2. Just go to the right from Luke and go to Acts 2, verse 29. Give me an amen when you get there. Acts 2.29, it says that Peter stood up among his brothers there in Jerusalem and says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Remember, God had promised him, you will have a descendant on the throne forever. He then says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. Enthronement, resurrection. He spoke and foresaw about the resurrection of the Christ and that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, a position of authority, a position of the king who is heir of the kingdom. Just watch whenever the queen of England goes and sits on a throne in front of parliament, who's sitting at her side, the son that will be king, the heir of the kingdom. That's how kingdoms work. So, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has, notice past tense, not will, but has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Dear brothers and sisters, so much of our walk is affected by the fact that we love talking about Jesus as Savior, but we completely forget that he is enthroned king over your life and mine. How often when asked, what is the gospel, do you say, he died for my sins, he forgives me for my sins, and he rose again to prove it? But how often do you forget, and he was enthroned through that resurrection, he sits at the right hand of the Father over his church today, and he's poured out his Holy Spirit so that he might reign in my life as king. That's the gospel. Death for our sin, in spite of our sin. Resurrection to prove that he is who he said he is, the Messiah. Enthronement, pouring out of the Spirit so that we might be empowered to follow him. Dear brothers and sisters, at Christmas, we do not look forward to the day when Christ will be our king because we rejoice in the fact that he's already been made so. In his prophetic office, David spoke clearly that the one that would sit on his throne, his descendant, was Jesus the Christ. In his resurrection, Jesus was enthroned as king, 
on the throne of David over what Paul calls in Galatians the Israel of God, the church. The church made up of Jew and Gentile in allegiance to Jesus, the Christ, is the kingdom, the kingdom that is here but not yet, the kingdom that is here spiritually but not here yet physically. And so we see in these promises of Gabriel that Jesus was conceived and born of a virgin, the greatest of all servants in the kingdom, the greatest of men, the son of the most high God, enthroned on the throne of David, reigning over the Israel of God. All of these promises is fulfilled in the cross, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the enthronement. All of them fulfilled. All promises fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. All witnessed by the very witness to whom these things were promised, Mary the mother of Jesus. And this is what we remember and rejoice in at Christmas. We can rejoice in the fact that these promises have been fulfilled. Is that what Christmas is about for you? Is this what you proclaim in your Christmas celebrations? Is this the promise for which you give thanks this holy day season? What simple reminders might you add to your Christmas traditions? Just simple things, so that Christ is the focus of our Christmas celebration. How about waking up and before you dig into all the goodies of the day, you simply stop. And as a family, even if there's non-believers, you give thanks to the one who we are reminded of on Christmas Day. What simple things might you add to your Christmas celebrations this year? so that you can focus truly on the promises that we can rejoice in that have been fulfilled? These are good questions to ask ourselves. Now, if you're like me, as I said at the beginning, it's hard to keep that mentality. It's hard in this season to keep your mind and heart focused on these truths because we are immersed in a materialistic and selfish culture in which we observe the sin of men and women on a daily basis. And so it's easy to lose our focus at Christmas. It's easy to get caught up in the fender benders and the parking lot arguments and the people that have to buy their Christmas present faster than you. It's easy to get sucked into these things. And it's easy to lose our focus as Christmas draws near and to be drawn into much of what reminds us that while these promises are fulfilled in Jesus, yes, we're still stuck in this in-between time in which we await the fulfillment of the fullness of the promises of the kingdom. You see, there's one promise that Gabriel stated that is yet to be fulfilled, and that is why at Christmas we hope. We're hoping in the promise yet to come. We're hoping in the promise yet to come. In Mary, you can hopefully see we have someone with whom we can resonate. As Protestants, I think we often cast her aside because we think, oh man, the Catholics went too far. (laughs) They glorified her too much, right? We're not supposed to bow down to her. We're not supposed to think she's all that great. So we pull back. If you grew up Catholic or if you went to Catholic Mass hundreds of times like I did in Catholic schools, you know that she's this woman that was very important this woman who we are to give respect to because she was indeed the mother of Christ, this woman who was righteous enough to be chosen in a sense, but not because of her own glory, but because of God's grace. 
And we can look at her and we can resonate with her regardless of what background you come from because she knows what it's like to exist in the in-between. Remember, she lived for 30 years wondering if these promises made actually would be fulfilled. She knows what it's like. The fulfillment of the child born of a virgin would come nine months from this scene we've read in Luke. From that point on, she would wait and watch for 30 years from the point of the announcement by Gabriel until Jesus stepped into ministry. Three years later, she would see him, roughly three years later, she would see him crucified on the cross. Can you imagine the wonder, the doubt, the questioning that must have been her constant companion as a human being? Can you even imagine? At year 28, don't you think she probably thought to herself, did I make that up? Was it actually a vision? I don't know about you and I, but the older I get, the more those things that were so prominent in my life and my walk in my early 20s, they start to fade a bit. And I think, was that as important as it truly seemed at the time? But then as she watched from a distance, her son was martyred on the cross of Calvary. She mourned over those three days, not knowing what would occur, mourning the death and really the murder at the hands of mankind of her dearest firstborn son. Imagine her shock and amazement as her son reappeared as the resurrected Messiah. One can only imagine the tension of relief that her son was alive, but yet the awkward and yet miraculous realization that she must have had that he was not only her son any longer, he was now the Lord of all creation and the resurrected and enthroned king of the universe. The one that used to be breastfed at her bosom is now the one to whom she bows as king and Lord. What an amazingly odd and yet miraculous circumstance she must have been in. When we wonder and doubt in our own lives if Jesus will ever return, honesty time, confession time, How many of you, even though you have faith that Jesus will return, have moments of doubt where you look around the world and you think, Lord, isn't it time yet? Does anyone ever have those doubts? You look around and you think, Lord, can it get any worse? What are you waiting for? And we have moments of doubt. It's human. But we look to Mary today to understand what faith is. When given the hopeful promises of Gabriel, look at what Mary responded with back in Luke 1.38. Look at Luke 1.38. Look back there with me. Mary said, Behold, I am your servant. I am the servant of the Lord, she said. Let it be to me according to your word. What faith. As we sit in this in-between time of a kingdom that is here but not yet, under a king that is enthroned and not yet fully present other than spiritually within his body by the Holy Spirit. In this time, we can look to the example of Mary and rejoice in the knowledge that God keeps his promises. So let it be to us according to his word. And what is his word? What is his last promise of that angelic announcement? Look again at Luke one thirty three with me. It says, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. It has started, it has begun, it has been inaugurated, it is not going anywhere. It will only get better when he returns. 
For the reader familiar with the Jewish roots of the Messiah, a section of Scripture we've covered recently in the Gospel of Mark comes from the book of Daniel that gives us background to this idea. Gabriel was stating very clearly to Mary that Jesus would fulfill the Old Testament prophecy given by Daniel. This is where it comes from in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. We've talked about that in in the uh, gospel according to Mark recently. And he came to the ancient of days, that's Yahweh, Father God, and was presented before him. And to him, to Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Brothers and sisters, listen to the hymns that we sing this Christmas. Listen to good old Bing Crosby as he's singing the songs. Bing is proclaiming, reproclaiming the prophecies of the Messiah, not just Christmas nonsense. These songs were written by men who wanted to prophesy, proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King. It was foretold by the visions of Daniel and reiterated by Gabriel, among many other scriptures, that Jesus would be the one given dominion by the ancient of days and his kingdom would have no end. In one sense, the kingdom is already inaugurated. And because it's king, Jesus the Christ has defeated the destructive capacity of death itself. There is no way that the king or his kingdom can be destroyed. And yet, we wait for the promise that he will come and restore his kingdom materially in the new heaven and the new earth. And so we, like Mary and all the other saints of God, still are awaiting the fulfillment of that promise. And even though as Christmas after Christmas passes for the last 2,000 years, we do not lose heart because the promise has been given and Christ has not forsaken his promise. This is why the Apostle Peter reminded the church of this fact in our second reading this morning from 2 Peter. Remember the idea of Emmanuel coming being promised by Isaiah 800 years prior to Jesus even being born. Well, you might say, it's been 2,000 years. It's time to give up on Jesus' second return, Hans. Well, no, it's not, and here's why. Look at 2 Peter 3.8 with me. Go ahead and turn there. In 2 Peter 3.8, Tyler read it to us this morning. It says this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Who's thankful that he didn't come 20 years ago? Anybody? Who's thankful that he didn't come 30 years ago? Anybody? Who's thankful that he didn't come 50 years ago? Anybody? I am so thankful that he didn't come earlier because he has given me room to repent and he's given that to you as well. Grace is room to repent, not room to continue in sin. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness 
and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We might think, oh man, Peter walked with Jesus. No wonder he had such faith. No, he's called to the same faith you and I are. According to Jesus' promise, we are waiting. We, Peter, you, me, apostles, disciples for 2,000 years, are awaiting for new, new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Dear brothers and sisters, Christmas is a time where we can remember and rejoice in the fact that God the Father has made good on his promises, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and he will make good on the promise that we are waiting for, for even now, that there will indeed be a new heaven and a new earth in which the very righteousness of God dwells and upon which the throne of Jesus is founded. And this Christmas, we can look at the brokenness and sadness and selfishness that comes rushing in this time of year, and we can know that it will be overcome one day with the promise of the kingdom and the second coming of the king. Again, dear church, is this, that a promise yet to come is something we can hope in? Is this what you proclaim in your Christmas celebrations? Is this the promise in which you hope this Christmas season? Or are you, as I said last week, hoping that maybe this year the family will get along better? Are you hoping that maybe you'll get that one gift you know will make you happy? Or are you hoping in the hope of the return of our Lord? What simple reminders might you employ this Christmas to place your hope in Christ and his return rather than the trappings of the secular holiday? This morning, as we've been looking at Mary, we have been identifying with her as the mother of Jesus, as she too sat in the time between the promises of the two comings of the Messiah. But as I said earlier, for us as Protestants, we're hesitant to put too much focus on Mary. But let's finish by looking at one last bit of our text, and we will see that she is exactly the person with whom we, as saved believers, regenerate believers, can associate. Because like Mary, we can rest in God's gracious promises. Let's go back to Luke and look at how Gabriel addresses her. Back in Luke 128, The angel Gabriel greets her and calls her, O favored one, and tells her, The Lord is with you. In Luke 1.30, Gabriel says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. In the Latin translation of the Bible, known as the Latin Vulgate, commissioned by the Pope at the time and translated largely by the early church father Jerome, this is translated, O favored one, is translated as gratia plena, which means one full of grace. Now, unfortunately, the Catholic theologians took this and said she is one that could merit out grace and hand it out because she was full of it. And I think they're actually full of it, but that's okay. In other words, she is the one who is blessed by the sovereign favor of God. She is one chosen by God to be his vessel by which he would carry out his messianic mission. Now, there is one and only one Mary, absolutely, but we don't lift her up and revere her in a deification because of that. We just know she is special among all women and all men. Now, it's true that we need to give reverence to her because of this. But we give reverence to her because of her great faith and her willingness to be in service to God. 
But what we must also recognize that she is that she, like all the saints of God, are in the place of being used by God because we are given favor by God simply because of His grace. When we hear the promises given to Mary, we should not read them as promises given to the one anointed righteous saint above all others. Because obviously, she's the only one to whom the promise of the virgin birth can be given, okay? Just FYI, we'll clear that up. If any of you think that promise is given to you, it's, you're wrong, okay? It's only given to her. But beyond that, we should hear the promises that she was given by Gabriel as those given to all who might respond to the call of God by saying similarly, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your sovereign command. That's what we do when we accept Christ as Savior, King, and Lord. You see, it's by the grace that we have been saved. It's by the grace of God that you and I have been saved through faith in God's loving goodness and mercy. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you have responded to His call by giving your allegiance to Him as King, your gratitude to Him as Savior, and your obedience to Him as Lord, then you are similarly called one in whom there is gratia plena, one in whom there is the fullness of God's grace. And the Lord is with you by the Holy Spirit. Jesus came as Emmanuel not because of anything other than God's grace. You and I weren't special enough to merit it. Jesus lived and ministered in a way that proclaimed the kingdom for no other reason than God's grace. All of his actions in the Gospels were for no other reason than God's grace. Jesus died a death he did not deserve to justify us sinners in the sight of God and bring forgiveness of sin for no other reason than what? God's grace. Jesus poured out his spirit to you and I to empower us in serving him and unifying us to his body for no other reason than what, dear church? God's grace. It's by grace we have been saved. And Jesus will one day return to install the fullness of his kingdom and complete the fulfillment of his promises for no other reason than God's grace. By grace, you and I have been saved. By grace, you and I will be saved. This Christmas, as we rejoice in the promises of God fulfilled in Christ, and as we hope in promises yet to be fulfilled, we can rest in the gracious promise of God's gift of restoration, rescue, and redemption, the gift given to us in Jesus Christ. We can rest as those who submit in faithful obedience to his call and his command. And so today, dear church, if you do know Christ, please, please rest in that this Christmas season. If you don't know Christ, please join us in the restful assurance that we are Christ's by giving your life to him this morning. The elders will be in the back during the second part of worship and would love to pray with you and help you understand what it is to walk as obedient disciples of Jesus. But for those of us who are already in Christ, let's spend this time of worship this morning rejoicing in Christ rejoicing in what he's given us, hoping in his soon return and preparing our hearts and our minds to proclaim his goodness this Christmas and always.